Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Genetics, how much of our medical future is predetermined at birth? Are there future consequences if we don't know exactly what's in our family history? How close are we to having everyone test their genome for illness and then do what they need to prevent it? Dr. T.J. Slavin and Sandra Dreitger in the studio, genetics counselor and genetics experts from Hawaii Community Genetics. And we'll be taking your calls in just a few minutes at 941-3689 on Oahu, toll free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. First in medical news, if you have diabetes and you have significant episodes of low sugars, you're at a higher risk for developing dementia. In the latest issue of the Journal of the American Medical Association, researchers compared this risk and studied a population of almost 800 people ages 70 to 79 and monitored them for 12 years. They looked at the rates of dementia in those who were in the hospital because of low sugars versus those who weren't. The difference? Twice as many people with low sugar episodes requiring hospitalization had developed dementia, 34%, compared to 17% in those with no low sugar events. What does this mean to our growing older population? Well, taking insulin and some of the other pills to reduce sugar can sometimes work too well. And in the older folks, less strict sugar control may just be better in the long run. The more complicated the regimen of medications for diabetes, the higher the risk of low sugars, and thus, if you get these low sugar events, the higher the risk of dementia. If you're over the age of 70, talk with your doctor about your diabetes goals and review what makes the most sense for both of you to avoid low sugar events. Speaking of food, according to a recent article published in the Journal of the American Medical Association Internal Medicine section, vegetarians may live longer. Researchers from Loma Linda University in California reported that in a group of over 70,000 people, vegetarians had a 12% lower risk of death than non-vegetarians. Interestingly enough, this was mainly found in the men. Although this isn't fully understood, prior studies have looked at vegetarian diets, resulting in a lower likelihood for developing chronic diseases like heart disease or diabetes. So if you want to reduce your risk of heart disease, man or woman, I guess the answer is pass the salad, please. Have you ever wondered what lies in your future for your health? Heard a bit about the latest in women's cancer prevention, testing for BRCA genes? Want to know if you're at risk? We'd like to hear from you. You can join us at 941-3689 on Oahu, toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We have Dr. T.J. Slavin in the studio, in addition to Sandra Drake, and genetics counselor, and they are ready to take your call. Dr. Slavin, welcome to The Body Show. Welcome. Pleasure to be here. Sandra, Welcome. Thank you for having us here. Oh, I'm happy you're here. Now, you know, when we talk about genetics, Dr. Slavin, what are we really talking about here? What is DNA and and how is this related to who we are? I mean, let's get down to the true basics. You know, every cell in our body contains a lot of DNA, and in this DNA is all these instructions. Is that really what we're talking about when we say genetics? Uh, Yeah. When we we talk about genetics, uh, we're usually referring to... You know, the DNA that is from your mom and dad that that is what's called hereditary, meaning running through the families. 
Uh, we have about 20,000 genes that put us together, um, and we have a very large, what's called our genome, which is where all the little genes live, and they live on these little things called chromosomes. But taken together, the genome contains all the genetic information, and there's about 3.2 billion little A's, T's, G's, and C's, if you remember those, and those are the base pairs in DNA. And DNA is what makes everything you can feel on your body and touch and does all the work to break down our food and uh, is unfortunately responsible for a lot of diseases. So when we talk about the genetic component, we're talking about the DNA, which which makes uh, chromosomes, which are where genes are found. Now, we've mapped the human genome a few years back. Isn't that right? Yes. It, it took like forever. It seemed like it took like 10 or 15 years. And then as technology got better, we were better able to process that. What are we doing with the genome these days? I mean, this is part of genetics, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the genome is um, currently overall, I would say, mapped. So uh, Bill Clinton said the genome is done. And, All uh, right. Mission accomplished for yeah, the genome. Okay. Some, somewhat mission accomplished. But there's plenty of genes that we still have no idea what they do. And we still don't even know exactly how many genes there are. And when I say somewhere around 20,000, we have no idea. It could be as high as 30,000. There's a lot of genes that, uh, depending on how they get activated or spliced, and there's just different things that we found that many genes have different functions in the body. So I think now we're really in the, the next phase of exploring what the gene, uh, the genome does. And then just really understanding what is then even turning genes on and off like light switches, which is kind of called epigenetics, uh, which means on top of the genome. Epi is on top of. Uh, so that's that's kind of where we're at these days. Well, and that seems like a whole field. You know, people think, well, there's genes. Can't you just see them? No, no, no. It's it's part of this this DNA, all these base pairs. And there's not really a place that says, okay, start here. And now stop there and start over here again. You know, I mean, all of these things are sort of in this huge conglomeration of of DNA that there's not really instructions to go with it, per se. We don't necessarily know how to read that and determine, like you mentioned, how many genes that there are in the body. And from there, what do these different genes do? But we do know some things. Now, in the last... I would say, boy, in the last couple of months or so, Sandra, I'm sure you've gotten questions about this. You know, Hollywood actress Angelina Jolie decided to take proactive measures. She knew that she had a genetic syndrome, and this particular syndrome increased her risk for breast and ovarian cancer significantly. And so she said, all right, I want to do some genetic testing and found out she was positive and took these proactive actions. So is this one of the ways that we're using the genome in such a way to help give people more information about their medical future? I would definitely say yes. Uh, testing for um, your risk for certain cancers, like um, Angelina Jolie had, it definitely helps women to make uh, more informed medical decisions for themselves on how to manage that risk for cancer if it is increased above the average. Well, and we've we've talked about, we've heard a lot about BRCA genes and, and what are these. And when we talk about the genome and genes, uh, Dr. Dr. Slavin, what is the BRCA genes and what is the story behind this? Because this wasn't just something that somebody said, hey, you know what, let's just, uh, you know, let's let's test all these women and find out what's going on. I mean, there was actually some research that was done to discover this and then to make this testing available. What went on with that? Yeah. Um, 
I don't know all the specifics because I'm I'm a young guy, but <laughs> and I, I do can know. I can say yes, you are yes. <laughs> I do know in the in the uh, '90s, which is uh, very very long ago, there was uh, uh, not that <laughs> long ago. Don't make me feel old, Eric. There was uh, a good deal of research on uh, what's called linkage analysis of families that um, had uh, significant amount significant amount of uh, breast and ovarian cancer. So, and these families got a clinical diagnosis in, initially of what's called hereditary breast and ovarian cancer syndrome because they noticed that at least researchers and I hate saying they, but you know I'm using the kind of overall they right now. Uh, meaning researchers, uh, realized that there were um, these clusters of breast and ovarian cancers that were in certain families. Uh, They uh, collected blood on those families, did research, and found uh, at least these two genes, uh, the BRCA1 and the BRCA2 genes, which are, they work together in the sense that genes make generally proteins. And proteins are kind of the, the, what really do the work. They're like the business end of of, um, uh, you know, our hereditary from our parents. And uh, BRCA1 and BRCA2 protein work together, and but they live in totally different little areas of the genome. And so these two genes were initially realized to be about, in about evolved in around 5% of all hereditary breast and ovarian cancer, which was a lot. And, uh, and then uh, in some... Some of this I am not too uh, uh, up on, but at some point the genes became patented uh, and a company was spawned out of that patent called Myriad Genetics. Uh, And they are currently the only place in the United States that does the gene testing uh, for these two genes. Uh, There are many other genes that put you at risk for breast and ovarian cancer, uh, as well as colon cancers and other cancers. And for the most part, they... Uh, all fall into a category of genes called tumor suppressor genes. So their job in the body um, is to make tumor suppressor proteins, and these little tumor suppressor proteins um, are really supposed to keep the cells at bay and uh, keep our cell cycle under control and not let it get out of control. So if you have a defect in tumor suppressors, then you're not suppressing them. Exactly. So then potentially these tumors could grow. Now, when we talk about these uh, these BRCA genes, I know that you know, there is a test that can be done for it. But you mentioned that very few breast cancers in the whole quantity of women who get breast cancer are actually genetically related. So one of the things that I'm curious about, Sandra, is you do a lot of counseling for this. When you see people who who have had family members who have had breast cancer, are there certain histories that strike you as you should probably do the test or maybe you don't need to? What sort of elements of someone's family history might sort of suggest to you, hey, we've got to do something here? So definitely there are specific items I am looking for in a family history when we're specifically talking about breast and ovarian cancer. Uh, I do look at the age, a diagnosis of anyone with those cancers in the family. Why do you look at the age? Is it more concerning if they were younger when diagnosed as opposed to older? It's more concerning if someone is younger. So for breast cancer, our age cutoff is anyone 45 and younger is what we're really looking for. Um, The other ticket we're looking for is any woman with premenopausal breast cancer. And those are just some of our clues that we use to say, is genetic testing even indicated for this person? Is So basically, is the chance of finding something in one of those genes that we're testing 
high enough to really do the test where we think we would find something. And the reason that you put a lot of, I mean, for, for many reasons, you put a lot of thought into it. But is it is it something that, you know, not everybody wants to necessarily do this test? Maybe everybody does, and it may be cost prohibitive. But in that sort of situation, are you evaluating the chances of getting a, a result in a mutation? Because if there's a very low chance, there's no reason to run the test? Is that why you're sort of walking down the path of trying to figure out, should this person do the test or not? So, yes. So we're trying to figure out, should someone have Would the it test even or not? Okay. Right. And then another um, thing to that, we, that I always take into consideration is, is this test going to help that particular person or even that particular family? And does that person even want to know this information? Because there might be people out there who say, I don't want to know. Mm-hmm. And I there mean, are. Sure. And there's other there's other conditions out there, Huntington's disease and a couple of other ones that you pretty much can do a genetic test for. You know it runs in families and you may not really want to know those results. Now, you know, it's funny because I think back even, I would say, five years ago, if you said preventative mastectomy to someone, they would be like, why would you ever do such a thing? Just wait until the time comes and then you would do it. But, you know, Dr. Dr. Slavin, we're hearing about this more and more now, that this is actually a way to reduce your risk. What sort of rates of risk are we talking about? If you have these BRCA gene mutations, what are your chances of getting breast and ovarian cancer? And how much lower does that go if you do do something about it, whether it be mastectomy or, you know, taking the ovaries out? What kind of risk reduction are we talking? Mm-hmm. So these genes are are called um, there's there's a concept called penetrance, and so these two genes uh, are not 100% penetrant. Meaning that if you have a genetic change in these genes, uh, say you inherited uh, a non-working BRCA1 gene from your mother, it is not a guarantee that you are going to get breast or ovarian cancer or any other cancer. Uh, they the chance that you are going to get breast cancer is somewhere around eighty percent ballpark. And the well, chance- now if I was in Vegas and I had an eighty <laughs> percent chance of winning, I would probably say I'll play that game. So, so if you have some of these BRCA genes, let's just say one of them, for example, you may have an eighty percent chance in your lifetime of getting breast cancer, as opposed to the average risk, which is about twelve percent or so. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and forty percent chance of breast of uh, ovarian cancer. So With that might be better gene. odds in Las okay. Vegas. Yeah, I, I, I'm just. I'll be honest. I went to Vegas and went. Really? I'm not winning anything. I'm tired of making deposits. Time for withdrawals. Yeah. Just didn't work out. So, so when we talk about BRCA genes, eighty percent chance. With one gene, with BRCA one, you mentioned breast cancer, forty percent chance ovarian. What if you got both mutated? Um, you're a very unlucky person and you okay. should probably play the lottery. But, uh, and we have seen some families with, I have not seen a family yet with, uh, with a BRCA1 and a BRCA2 mutation. Okay, so either one or two. You tend to get either one or the other. And, okay. and again, only 5% of all can, uh, breast and ovarian cancer or breast cancers, we'll say, uh, have a BRCA1 or uh, 2 mutation anyways. Uh, ovarian, it is a little bit higher. Uh, but there, um, there are good risk-reducing strategies. Uh, and to, to get back to what you were asking initially, um, uh, you know, what Angelina Jolie did do with the uh, bilateral mastectomy or having both breasts removed uh, and, um, and then also having your ovaries removed is another major risk reduction strategy. And with that comes obviously family planning, a lot of other issues to talk about with a high-risk uh, breast surgeon. What sort of reduction? So if you have an 80% chance 
to start off with because you have one of these gene mutations, and let's say you do a preventative mastectomy, is your risk now zero? No, it's never going to be zero. Uh, you'll get down if you, uh, with a double mastectomy and your ovaries removed, you can get down to below uh, 90% or so of risk. Uh, there's other things to do, though, before even that. If uh, you want to cut your wrist in half, for instance, you can use uh, tamoxifen for five years. That is uh, commonly done uh, to reduce risk for uh, women with um, BRCA1 or 2 mutations as well. So that would be to reduce their risk for breast cancer and ovarian cancer. Mm-hmm. Or just breast cancer. Sandra? <laughs> um, so tamoxifen only reduces chance for breast cancer, okay. not ovarian. Um, the number I typically tell uh, families or patients who meet with me um, about those surgeries is that the surgeries reduce your chance for those cancers by about 90 to 95%. So now you've, you've really reduced your odds. Instead of having... If you have one of these mutations, 80% chance of getting breast cancer, 40% of getting ovarian cancer. Mm -hmm. Now you've reduced that risk significantly Mm -hmm. by about 90 to 95%. Correct. So you're talking about a very small percentage of people with the genetic mutation that would still develop these types of cancers. And Mm -hmm. I imagine if you have your ovaries out, it's not going to be, is it going to be a metastatic ovarian cancer that you might get? Because it can't be primary if you don't have any ovaries, right? Well, so, you know, I guess it depends on what you call it, right? True. So it just depends on what you call it. If you find a a variant and you find these cells, these ovarian cells that have migrated, Mm -hmm. could they become cancerous? I imagine, yes, they could. Yeah, and a lot of our uh, thought now to be fallopian drop metastasis. So uh, now it's recommended also have the fallopian tubes removed, but peritoneal cancers as well. Uh, So So it could migrate. There's microscopic cells that can go somewhere else, and you really can't take care and make the risk 0%. Mm -hmm. But this is a serious consideration, and I know that, you know, there's there's more than one person out there in the Hollywood realm who have who has taken on this surgery and done this. Um, I think there's a couple of other people I've heard mentioned, but it's a big deal. It's it's a huge decision, and, mm-hmm. and that's something mm-hmm. that you really you mentioned family planning. You have to really think about. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. T.J. Slavin and also Sandra Drake, and we are talking about genetics. And if you have a question about whether or not you're at risk or is this testing appropriate for you. You can join us at 941-3689 on Oahu, toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Well, the news is great, and certainly All Things Considered is a program that keeps a lot of people company on the way to or from work, as the case may be. Uh, Morning Edition, when I was working, was great because that makes your time on the road productive. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. A road trip on the Lincoln Trail means you're likely to run across a group of Civil War reenactors. They're really passionate, and they get along with each other, the Confederates and the Union reenactors, and they're really there to honor history itself. American History Road Trip themes, and frequent flyer tips from TV's Samantha Brown. I love long flights. I love airports. It's on the next Travel with Rick Steves. Tuesday at 4 p.m., following Fresh Air. 
Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathy Kozak, and I'm here in the studio with Dr. Thomas Slavin, who is here from Hawaii Community Genetics, and Sandra Dreich, and she's from the same office, and we're talking about genetics and how does this really apply to you? And if there's something that runs in your family, does it have a genetic link? And do you want to know about it and be tested for it? If you've got a question, if you've ever done genetic testing and learned something interesting, we'd love to hear your story. You can join us at 941-3689, toll free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Before the break, we were talking about genetic testing for breast cancer, and there's a big decision coming up. Uh, Sandra, you know a little bit about this. The Supreme Court is going to be making a decision on the the legality of patenting genetics, and in particular genomes and, and doing testing such as the BRCA testing. What have you heard about that? It's coming up this week, isn't it? Yes. So as far as I can tell, it sounds like a decision should be coming out either later this week or month. Um, and the case is involving should we be able to patent our genes. And uh, so in the genetics community, we're definitely excited to uh, see what decision the Supreme Court will be making with this. So right now, let's talk about bracket testing. So there's, you know, Dr. Slavin, you mentioned there's one company that does it. It's Myriad Genetics, and they kind of have a market on doing all the bracket testing. So if somebody said, I want to test to see if I have this genetic risk, it's a blood test, right? Or it could be a saliva test. Saliva test. So you would have this way to do it. You would mail it to this company, Myriad Genetics. They would do the genetic testing. And for certain individuals, not everybody, um, insurance may cover it. It depends on family history and risk associated, et cetera. What might happen if the Supreme Court decides that you can't patent genes? That would definitely affect Myriad Genetics' ability to have a patent on this test. Do you think a lot more people would do the genetic test? I think it would uh, free things up significantly because... I, In a good oh, way or a bad way? I mean, is everybody going to rush to say, I want to know if I have it, and might we find out that there's a lot of people who have, you mentioned penetrance earlier, incomplete penetration of this genetic history in their in themselves, and then wind up having to make decisions about things that might never have happened? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it will just open up a lot of doors. So that, you know, that would be good one. doors and bad doors, you good know. Do- uh, yeah, not many bad doors. Okay. <laughs> uh I think I think um you know, in the sense of uh the good doors, it'll make it a much the testing will go down substantially right now. It's around a $4,000 give or take test. It's very expensive because only one lab offers it. Uh, they are currently not offering a reflex panel to do another 20 or 25 genes that are also associated uh, with different types of cancers. Uh, and I think if the patent comes off, you'll see many labs almost overnight open up uh, BRCA1 and 2 testing. Um, and the good of that will be that it will make it much, it will substantially bring down the cost because you'll have more free market, um, you know, ability to drive the cost down. Um, Myriad, though, has over the years, you know, amounted a major database of all the variants in the genes. Um, and it will take a little bit of time before I think a large part of the medical community starts using the other labs uh, with really good confidence. Uh, but it will come. And I think the first step is is uh, having active competition. Um, 
So bringing competition to this particular industry may be good. One of the arguments against it that I've heard is, would this therefore decrease the chances of other companies wanting to create research about genetics because they might not be able to patent a gene and therefore may not get a return on their you know, research and development investment? Is that a realistic concern? I think now there's not many genes that are out there. I mean, some are still actively trying to be uh, patented and things, but um, you know, we pretty much have most of the genes documented at this point. So I, I, I'm not too worried about that. The other thing with, with uh, the current landscape is that the the technology is patented, uh, and really uh, there's some ways to get around it, even right now. Uh, potentially, you could do BRCA one and two testing if you did it on a larger platform uh, without saying you're actually looking for BRCA1 and 2 uh, genes. So there's some ways around there's it. There's some ways around it even right now. And I think I think either way, uh, the labs will become smarter and smarter to find other ways around the patent issue. If it even is one. Sandra, you said maybe later this week, maybe later this month, the Supreme Court is due to bring a, a decision on this particular case. Correct. Can you patent the human genome? Can you patent mm-hmm. your genetics and can someone else do it? I mean, I'm kind of mm-hmm. curious. If we wind up hearing that you can, which would be the opposite of what we might expect, if we hear, yes, you can patent your own genome and someone else can patent your genome as well, what does that mean? I'd be curious. What do you think? Yeah. And it, truthfully, the decision very well may come that way. And it is there is a reason that it had to go to the Supreme Court. And it's because there has been a lot of ambiguity all through uh, the rest of the courts. Uh, this is uh, not small money. We are talking about a $4 billion company, um, and they have a very good legal department. <laughs> well, and there were some other times when, when you know, the medical community has looked at using somebody's personal property. I don't know if you would call it that anymore. I mean, you know, we talk about HeLa cells. Henrietta Lacks was the woman whose cells were initially um, taken because they seemed to grow to infinity from a tumor, actually, and are used in research a lot. So that was a situation where, you know, here we are with someone's particular tumor cells that are now used pretty ubiquitously in the research community. And what does that mean for that individual? Um, not so much. I mean, apparently looking at it now, they said, okay, this was discarded medical tissue, and therefore we can do research with it. Um, it seems like there would be a lot of changes that might go on in the genetics community if you can or if you can't patent genes. I mean, a lot of things that might actually really take place and, and have an effect on people every day. Sandra, I'm curious, you counsel women about genetic testing, particularly about BRCA testing. How many of the women that you counsel who choose to get the testing done. Are they often positive when they do the testing? So actually, it's going to be a small percentage that actually are positive. Um, even just the way the numbers come back, you have to think, well, about 5 to 10% of breast cancers are hereditary. So that means roughly about 5 to 10% of the women I would test would come back with a mutation. Now, you're testing the women who have not had the cancer. Um, I'm testing both. So some women, they have either have or have had a cancer diagnosis. And then other women will come to me uh, with no cancer diagnosis. And sometimes there's just nobody left in the family with cancer to start the testing with. So would you normally start with the person who had the cancer? Yes. 
So if, if somebody out there says, you know, my mom had breast cancer, she is alive, she had it when she was younger, and maybe let's say she's 50 now, she had it when she was 45, and now I'm coming into my 20s and, and I want to know, should I do this testing? They would test the mom before they would test the daughter. That would be the best approach. And then if the mom was positive, they would test the daughter? Yes. Mm-hmm. And if the mom was negative, the daughter doesn't need to be tested? Yes. So it really depends a lot on if the family member who has had the cancer is still alive. Yes. And mm-hmm. if they're willing to do the test. Mm-hmm. Yes. Out of those women who are positive for the genetic testing, how many of them take some kind of surgical action? That would be a mastectomy or removing the ovaries. Do you see that happen more now than you used to? Or do a lot of women choose to use medication like tamoxifen we mentioned earlier to reduce their risk? Um, I would say, you know, as far as surgery or no surgery goes, I'd say I'd probably see about a 50-50 split. Um, And there's a lot of different factors that go into the decision of having surgery or even taking something like tamoxifen to reduce chance for cancer. And that could be anything from caring for a family member with those cancers and seeing that story or um, other things like just wanting to have children or just being attached to our own bodies because that definitely happens. And for the women who are given the option of tamoxifen, would potential side effects to tamoxifen also be an issue? If they have a history of blood clotting, tamoxifen could increase your risk for clots. That might suggest that they move in a different direction as well. Yes, definitely. Okay. Now, there's a lot of other testing that is done in addition to bracket testing. I mean, that's one that's come out in the media recently because of some of the stories from Hollywood, but also it's one of the more common genetic tests done. Uh, Dr. Slavin, what other types of genetic tests do you see often? Because you also, you know, you're certified not just you did medical school, then you did pediatric residency, then clinical genetics, and then molecular uh, diagnostics. So, So you see a lot of kids. What sort of genetic testing do you see in kids? Yeah. So it's a pretty exciting time. I mean, even since I was going through um, uh, residencies, uh, when I was in residency, we used to do karyotypes all the time. The time and now a karyotype would be a karyotype is it's kind of like a picture of all of your chromosomes from a cell, and we're we have forty six chromosomes that put us together. Uh, and so it's a nice little picture of all those. And and that was, for a long time, that was all we had at our disposal. And then over the years, in the 80s and 90s, we started developing uh, different molecular techniques. So where we started understanding, okay, we want to look at this particular area of this particular chromosome. And out of that became fish testing, which is called fluorescent in situ hybridization. And then when I was in residency, that was pretty much what we had at our disposal. We had karyotypes and we had fluorescent in situ hybridization to look for very specific syndromes. So we could diagnose Down syndrome and different trisomy syndromes. Um, we could look for things like the George syndrome, with ha- which have very specific things like cleft palate and an intellectual disability. Uh, and there's a whole host of things that were well-known genetic syndromes that we could go looking for. Uh, in the last decade, uh, things have really changed. Uh, and it's, it's, they've changed faster than I could have even possibly imagined. And what's happened is genetic testing has gotten much faster and much cheaper. 
Um, and in today's day and age, I don't even order karyotypes anymore. And it's pretty amazing. Uh, in the last year, I've probably ordered maybe two or three just to confirm something like Down syndrome, uh, which is an extra 21st chromosome, or something like uh, trisomy 13 or trisomy 18, with, which are congenital birth defect syndromes. Um, what are you doing instead? Yeah, so now we do these uh, fancy things called chromosome microarrays, um, and we order a lot of them. And uh, we order them generally for uh, children with multiple congenital anomalies, also intellectual disability for unknown reason or autism. Uh, and the pickup rate, based on the studies with uh, using these uh, new fancy tests, is about 20%. Whereas if you took a child with autism or intellectual disability and you did a, the karyotype on them, your chance to find something was less than or around 1%. With Is these it tests, the, the, it's much the better. the karyotype looks normal? Yes, the karyotype looks normal. You can be missing about 5 million base pairs, little A's, T's, G's, and C's, and still have a completely normal karyotype. And that could be 40 to 60 genes. And so this new type of testing really counts up the genes. And it says, okay, this individual is missing 16 genes, and here's the genes. Or this person has duplication of 20 genes, and here's the genes. Um, and so that gives, us, that gives us a lot more information for working up these children. Um, then additionally, there's always the good old physical exam. And that's what my partner and I do, my partner, Lori Siever at uh, uh, Hawaii Community Genetics. Uh, we're clinical geneticists, and we do clinical exams, and we look for other syndromes. Uh, and there's a whole lot of syndromes. We have 20,000 genes, and uh, all those can have problems, and there's a lot of genetic syndromes. Um, and for those, we have to do what's called single gene testing. And that's where we would have to pick out, okay, this person looks like they have Marfan syndrome. And we know that if we do a chromosome analysis or the, what I was talking about before, the chromosome array test on a person with Marfan syndrome, that it will be normal. But we also know that most people with Marfan syndrome have a problem in one gene, and that gene is fibrillin 1. And for each syndrome, we now know usually what gene is causative. Not always, but many times. Uh, so where we've been the last five years or so is that we've been able to go looking for one gene at a time. Uh, sometimes we can now do them as panels, and now the panels are becoming much more commonplace to the point where I'm not even really ordering one gene at a time that often anymore. So you might order a panel, and that could give you a lot of information. Mm -hmm. If it's not A, it could be B or C or D further on down the line. So, you know, it's funny because you mentioned when you first started out, and I think, yeah, I remember <laughs> karyotypes, and I remember fish being a hot thing, and boy, now they're doing chromosomal arrays, you said? Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's a whole other thing that even I haven't heard about. And I, I hope I'm not uh, that old and out of date yet. <laughs> so it sounds like a lot has changed. Uh, speaking, of, uh, speaking of somebody who has an interesting question, let's, have, let's hear from Reggie from Kaka'ako. Reggie, welcome to The Body Show. I'm learning oh, okay. a lot. Oh, yeah, me too. I was actually calling because um, I'm an avid listener of uh, Science Fridays. And, and, and not too long ago, I think sometime uh, last uh, quarter of last year, they were talking about the uh, human genome being mapped out and it being more as a model or hardware for like the software of genetics, like epigenetics. And I was wondering how um, how closely epigenetics are considered when diagnosing certain gene expressions and the probabilities of some people having the say cancerous gene but not getting expressed due to kind of epigenetic factors like our biodiversity and our bacterial DNA. And 
you know, those things producing what they produce when they metabolize within our system. You know, Reggie, I think we might have heard the same Science Friday because I remember hearing part of, parts of that and thinking, wow, that sounds so cool because, yeah. you know, we're also looking into therapies and, and could therapies target certain genes and they would need to use the epigenetics in order to find those particular areas. So you're right. There was a lot of interesting stuff on that uh, on that program. So I'm curious, uh, Dr. Slavin, epigenetics, is that used in some of our genetic testing and should it be? Will it be? Yeah, it definitely is. Uh, just maybe not like sometimes we we like to throw it around. And, you know, overall, I can only think of a few small uh, circumstances where we use it. We do use it in colon cancer. Uh, I know some places around the country do use it in breast cancer. Um, but that's really about it right now. It's a lot of research-based testing, but I do think it's going to be the next big forefront of where uh, genetic testing is. So I am always going to have a job because the minute we really get very comfortable at the genome, we're going to be now functioning on the or focusing on the uh, the epigenome. All right, Reggie. Well, you're on the cutting edge. That's what I'm going to tell you, is that you're asking great questions about what's happening tomorrow in genetics and how we can learn some more about how to get there. So thanks for calling us today on The Body Show. If you've got a question, I've got Dr. TJ Slavin in the studio in addition to Sandra Drake, and we're talking about genetics and and another term we've learned epigenetics and what are some of the uh, what are some of the consequences of this in our standard medical health and and what do we do when we see our doctor and go could this be something that quote runs in the family and is there genetic testing available so you know you mentioned pediatrics uh, Dr Slavin and you said you're doing a lot more of this on kids so so under what circumstances would you be involved would you know parents you know they give birth to a child and they have this child at home and maybe there are some things going on at what point do you get involved at what point does somebody say you need a genetics consult it's <laughs> a good question um i would say the majority of our consultations come from the neonatologist um and they are asking for help with an underlying diagnosis or, you know, if we can pull it all together. They may have a child with some birth defects or a child that's just very low tone or a child with some developmental delay, even as a baby or not feeding very well. And, uh, you know, we're kind of the experts in that field. I guess you could think of us as kind of like expert diagnosticians or something. You're like the Dr. House of genetics. Yeah, I do say that Did sometimes. you ever see yeah. that show? Yeah, we I actually mean, But are. you're so much nicer than, <laughs> than he portrayed on television. So you're like the Dr. House. You put it all together. You come up with this syndrome. And, you know, one of my favorite shows that I used to watch was Mystery Diagnosis. And one of the things that I liked on that show was the fact that they would always teach you something new. And it would often be these super rare genetic syndromes where there's been 10 documented cases in the world. And, you know, here you are learning about it. It makes me feel always a little bit special when I know it. All right. Well, I'm Dr. Kathy Kozak here in the studio with Dr. TJ Slavin from Hawaii Community Genetics and Sandra Drake from Hawaii Community Genetics. When we come back, we are going to talk some more about who needs genetic testing. Is it just for kids? Is it just for women? Who out there might want to consider this? And if so, what are they testing for? We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. The HPR News Department reports aren't only on the air. Their daily reports are posted on our website. Noe Tanagawa with Arts and Culture Reports, political reporter Wayne Yoshioka's updates on the legislature, Bill Dorman's news of Asia and the Pacific, Dave Lawrence with the latest pop star interview, 
the HPR News Department at hawaiipublicradio.org. They're just a click away. A kiss, she thinks, has to be entirely balanced. It has to have a little conflict, a little dialectic, a little revolution. The First Kiss, this week on Selected Shorts from PRI, Public Radio International. Tuesday at 5 p.m., following Travel with Rick Steves. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathy Kozak here in the studio with Dr. T.J. Thomas, or we'll call you T.J. Slavin, and also Sandra, Sandra Drake from Hawaii Community Genetics. If you want to join us, if you've got a question, you can at 941-3689, toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now is your chance to ask an expert. Even I'm learning some stuff here. It's always fun for me to do that. Before we get started, we've got a caller on the line, Jack from Kailua. Jack, welcome to The Body Show. It's my pleasure. Great to hear from you. How are you doing today? Well, I'm on my way home after a long day, so I'm doing pretty well. But I have a question. About uh, 12 years ago, my first wife was diagnosed with uh, GBM, and uh, that had predictable results a couple of years after that. But six months before she was diagnosed, her sister died of the same disease. And I'm curious as to whether there's been any progress made in terms of determining whether there's any genetic connection for that particular malady. Now, you were mentioning GBM. Are we talking glioblastoma multiforme? We certainly are. All right. That's a bad brain tumor that I'm very sorry to hear that your first wife and her sister unfortunately suffered from. Uh, Dr. Slavin, GBM, genetic? Sisters, I mean, it's pretty rare to get a brain tumor. Now you've got a sibling with one. Mm. What are the chances? Do we worry yeah. about something here? And there there are people studying that. Unfortunately, yeah, we're, we're kind of not far off from probably where you last left off. Um, there's, uh, you know, if there's colon cancer running in the family, we definitely think about some of the uh, disease, uh, the genes associated with uh, what's called Lynch syndrome, hereditary non-polyposis colorectal cancer syndrome, where you get polyps in colon cancer. Um, there's also other disorders like neurofibromatosis that can predispose you to getting, um, glioblastoma multiforme. Yeah. So it it is a, it is a good, um, um, you know, these are good consults. So, (laughs) you know, sometimes is is it hard because GBM is, is kind of rare. I mean, when we talk about trying to research a particular disorder, when we talk about this particular brain tumor, not everybody gets the same one and certainly not everybody gets this particular one. But then you've got to get a whole bunch of people with that right. all together to do some of the testing. So it almost seems more difficult because of the fact that it's so rare. Mm-hmm. And then it makes you think maybe there is more of a genetic component. It's it's kind of curious. What would be a better way to go about figuring this out? Should we have a nationwide glioblastoma multiforme registry? Is there a way that, I mean, is that one of the ways that we could we could do more testing? I know there's definite researchers out there that would be very interested in, uh, in uh, his uh, wife's family. Um, I had a case in residency that was uh, very similar, and we uh, put him in a brain uh, tumor registry. Uh, so these definitely exist out there, uh, and there's people doing active research. And I know one of the next uh, big presidential pushes in research is going to be uh, unlocking the brain, and with that is going to be a lot of uh, – we're going to have a lot more brain cancer uh, research coming out of it. 
All right. Well, thanks for calling us, Jack. Thanks for sharing your story. And I do hope that we get a little bit further in some of our genetic research for something like that. So that, you know, boy, anybody else out there doesn't have to watch their sister go through that and go through it themselves. So thanks for sharing your story with us today. We've got another caller on the line. We have Christine from Maui. Christine, welcome to The Body Show. Hi, thank you for taking my call. My son is 31, and his father died at age 50 of colon cancer. Both of his grandfathers died of colon cancer, and his paternal grandfather died of colon cancer. Oh, that's scary. Okay. And my son had smoked for 15 years. He's been clean for two. So I'm just wondering, when is it appropriate for him to either genetic or non-genetic testing uh, get a first screening? It's a really good question. So he's 31, and the youngest age of any family member who was diagnosed with colon cancer was 50? Mm-hmm. Okay. Sandra, what would you tell somebody like this? It might be genetic. Take the genetics part, and I'll, I'll take the rest. Okay. Um, so, uh, you know, there's always a chance that the colon cancer could be hereditary. The tricky mm-hmm. part with colon cancer is that it's also just a common cancer. Um, So, you know, definitely, you know, we could think more about, you know, should it, should we do any sort of genetic testing? Um, Of course, uh, we would want to start genetic testing in the best situation in a family member who has a cancer diagnosis. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right. So, Christine, here's... When the other portion of it, if you don't mind, would be when would it be appropriate for him to ask his doctor to do any kind of normal screening for him? You got it. That part I'll take for you. So genetic testing, if any one of the people are still alive who had the cancer, they may want to get tested. Now, let's say that they're not, and that seems to be the scenario you're in. So you had all these people with colon cancer surrounding him, and he was a smoker, and... Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad that he quit. So good job. You know, usually what they would say if there was one family member diagnosed at the age, usually they say below 50, subtract 10 years and start colon cancer screening then. So you've got 50, subtract 10 and you're 40. But then you tell me that not only did his father, but he had uncles and he had a paternal grandfather. And that's the sort of thing where... Both grandfathers, grandfathers, you know, exactly. I'm thinking have him go to a gastroenterologist, describe his history. They may actually want to do something now. And again, it depends on some other elements of his family history and including your history since this is your son. But they may want to start doing some things now not to look for necessarily a genetic type, although that can also be done, but also just to make sure everything's okay. Right. So you got to drag him in now at 31. Yeah, you know, he has great care, and he's he's real amenable to it. You know, good. Okay, so you've done him a great service. You've you've gotten ahead of the game, and you've already talked to him about it. You got him to quit smoking. Good job for him. And yeah, it yeah, sounds like decision. Yeah, so. good. You've got a good plan in place. Time to yeah. have him see a gastroenterologist. The time is now. Okay. Thanks so much, Kathleen. All right. Thanks for calling us, Christine. Okay. Well, we have another caller on the line. All right. You guys, we've we've hit all our callers towards the end, and this is great. We have Lil from Honolulu. Lil, welcome to The Body Show. Well, thank you very much. And um, I want to kind of piggyback on your previous caller. Um, uh, I, uh, I had endometrial cancer and really found it out because I was talking to my relatives about Thanksgiving dinner realized how many people had died uh, in my family 
before the age, around the age of 50 with uh, endometrial cancer and realized I was the only woman in my family that didn't have it. Wow. So and, Thanksgiving uh, dinner. I had some, a history of uh, perimenopausal bleeding, which many of my practitioners had kind of just said, well, you know, that sometimes happens. Well, I'd like everyone to know that it's cancer, unless it's proven differently. And uh, because I had this conversation with my uh, relative, I, I did get proper care because I insisted on being uh, tested uh, for with an ultrasound and a, an endometrial biopsy. But getting back to uh, your previous caller, the syndrome that, um, because there was such a family link with that, I, I, I couldn't believe that statistically there wasn't something going on in my family. So I did have some genetic testing done for a thing called Lynch syndrome. Uh, which is uh, one of the gene links to the uh, the type of uh, cancer that your previous caller was talking about, but also uh, one of the one of the subgenes of that uh, syndrome is has a high rate of endometrial cancer, uh, especially for women, of course, but uh, also pancreatic cancer. It seems in my family. So, um, so did you have uh, it, Lil? Were you positive I, for Lynch syndrome? I was. I'm positive for Lynch syndrome. So. Uh, you know, when you talk about someone finding out something, uh, uh, you know, that, that's devastating uh, and can be devastating emotionally. So um, I went to my, my brothers. I have three brothers. And I said, look, you guys need to get tested for this. And I went to my, my cousin. I said, you, you need to get tested for this because her brothers had died of uh, uh, pancreatic cancer and she had endometrial cancer. So we got everyone pretty much alarmed uh, and found out that um, she had the uh, Lynch syndrome, so it must have come through my mother because that's our common bond. And um, she had her daughter tested at the age of 27 and in the testing discovered that she had endometrial cancer. Um, So I am now having my children tested. I found out already that one of them does carry the gene. Um, which she's young and, you know, she wants to have children. Um, but now her cousin has had this radical hysterectomy at a very young age. She now has the option to maybe bank her eggs. And uh, if she does develop the, the cancer before she has children, um, she, can, um, she can make that choice. Um, and also, you know, there is a higher vigilance place, so you have more rigorous testing and, and looking at and, and in my case, um, uh, by the grace of God, honestly, uh, I was saved from chemotherapy and, uh, and radiation uh, because it was contained in the uterus when they found it, but it was very, very close to the edge. Well, and so, so I would very much encourage people who have any symptoms whatsoever or any history of a potential cancer that this deadly like this, uh, to, to seek the care of a proper um, referral like you suggested. And, and, you know, one of the biggest problems with cancer is denial. You, you just don't want to believe that you could be carrying this and pass it on to the people that you love the most. But what you're passing on to them is knowledge and uh, the ability to, to save themselves before um, things get too bad. My, my mother died of endometrial cancer when I was pregnant with my son, and it, it was terrible. So I appreciate your show. 
All right. Well, thank you so much for calling, Lil. And you know, your family members have you to thank because it was your discussion at Thanksgiving and it was also your insistence that you do further testing that really helped your entire family, really, to to make the decision to get that information for themselves. So credit to you, because you're absolutely right. When you have such a strong family history, God, that must have been a spooky Thanksgiving conversation. Next thing you know, you find out all these women have had this problem. But you've saved some lives, absolutely, by being your own advocate. And you're right. Fear is what keeps a lot of people from getting tested and denial as well. So I give you a lot of credit because you just decided, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to get tested. And hey, maybe you've helped our former caller, Christine from Maui as well. So thanks for calling us today, uh, Lil. And I really appreciate you sharing your experience with genetic testing. I'm curious, Sandra, do you often hear something similar? Someone who says, you know, I talked to the family. We've all got it. There's got to be something here. And then comes to you for genetic counseling and, and you start this process. Oh, yes, definitely. Um, and oftentimes, uh, individu- individuals, they are diagnosed with cancer themselves, and then they're courageous enough to tell their family members about the diagnosis, and then before they know it, their family members are popping up everywhere. Oh, really? Me too. I've had that too. Or just some other type of cancer diagnosis. And, you know, so it's just something that I like to tell families, it's important to talk about this with each other because it's only by sharing this information that then eventually someone starts talking to their doctor or puts it together themselves and then they come to genetics and we go, great, we found some very useful information for your family. And that's really what you're doing is you're providing information, giving them some counseling about some of their options. And the key, and and Lil put it absolutely correctly, is what she really gave them was the gift of knowledge. Mm -hmm. So now you know and you can make some decisions about what you want to do with this information. You know, she mentioned family members who have had hysterectomies if they're going to have Mm -hmm. a problem and or if they already do and they didn't even know it. And then other people who have to make this decision. And it's a difficult one. It's not a decision to take lightly but you're right getting the information is is always the the most important thing to do mm-hmm. uh, dr slavin do you see that as well people who really just they want information and with that they can make better choices yes uh, knowledge is power i would say when it comes to uh, genetic information um, we have um, a lot of people for instance with uh, you know the, like the last caller with lynch syndrome Yes, getting the information out to the family. We generally, with uh, counseling, will provide a family letter for them to, uh, because we don't expect you to be a genetic ex- expert after you know you are uh, told about this genetic diagnosis. So it, it is hard to talk to your family about it because sometimes you don't even know where to start. And so family letters help. I mean, we're always there uh, if people have questions. But definitely knowing a diagnosis can be empowering. Um, and with some very bad conditions, like you brought up Huntington's disease, which is a progressive neurologic disease uh, that can be extremely devastating, uh, there are options for having children, such as pregenetic diagnosis, uh, where an embryo can uh, be selected uh, for without the genetic mutation and implanted. And, you know, we do see more and more people accessing uh, pregenetic diagnosis these days, which is through generally in vitro fertilization. Uh, also, just knowing what you or your child has can be very 
liberating. Uh, it can take a lot of guilt off of uh, sometimes the parents I've seen in my experience. Uh, also, it helps you with family access to support services. Um, also, with prognosis of, uh, you know, where is my child going to be in 10 years? You know, uh, what, you know where am I going to be in 10 years? Um, you know, how to plan. Uh, there's just a lot of options that open up. So get the knowledge because that could really help you. Where is the field of genetics going? We talked a little bit to one of our callers, Reggie, about epigenetics. Where do you see genetics in the next 10 years? I mean, think of all the changes that have occurred in the last 10 years. Where are we headed? Mm-hmm. Yeah, genetics, uh, it's it's moving so quickly. And I think um, one of the most interesting things is uh, right now, we aren't generally ordering clinical full genome sequencing, meaning sequencing all of the entire 3.2 billion base pairs of the A's, T's, G's, and C's. But what we are doing is something a little bit smaller scale, which is called now exome sequencing, where we will look at the protein coding portions of all the genes. And with that, um, the one of the major labs that's currently doing it in Texas, uh, Baylor Medical Genetics Laboratory, uh, did about a thousand cases. And these are cases that some geneticist has seen at some point and said, "This child has something, and we got to figure out what it is." And they definitely have something, uh, and have sent the sample there. And only about fifty percent of those cases came back showing something. So we're we're definitely not there yet. We have we have a lot of room to go. Now, that being said, genetic testing is getting incredibly inexpensive. Uh, I would not be shocked within the next five to 10 years if newborn screening even goes to uh, almost a full genetic testing kind of platform. Uh, also, it's not, e- it's not going to be cost effective at all to look at one gene in a few years. Uh, you're going to just probably do the patient's entire genome and then just look at data and go back and just sort out what genes you actually want to look at. So if you have someone that comes in for cancer in the family, instead of trying to figure out, okay, should we look at the Lynch syndrome gene? Should we look at the BRCA1 and 2 genes? Should we look at some other gene? You'll just sequence their entire genome and you'll say, okay, we're going to look at the 100 genes associated with cancer and we're just going to see what we get. But that, you know, with that, we also need more knowledge to sort out variants of unknown significance and, you know, being better able to, to handle the information. So we've got a lot up and coming but we're not there yet. Okay, so to Reggie and Kakaako, epigenetics, we're getting there. To anybody out there who's worried about genetic syndromes, take the advice of, of Lil and go get tested and, and make sure that you have, you know, you're your best advocate and you share that information with your family. Thanks to Christine from Maui. She's gotten on her son with all that colon cancer going around. Something's got to happen and seeing a specialist might just be the case. So thanks for uh, sharing that story with us, all of the callers. And thanks to both of you for coming on the show today. Thank you. Thank you. All thanks right. For I'm glad you were here. Sandra Dreich is a genetics counselor, and Dr. T.J. Slavin is a physician clinical geneticist at Hawaii Community Genetics. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on our podcast, www.hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also take a look at our Facebook page. In addition, our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathy Kozak. We'll see you next week when we talk about that mysterious organ in the pancreas, Monday at 5 on The Body Show.